This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What the heck is happening in Afghanistan? I think we roughly know the history of first Russia invaded there, and we funded the rebels, the Mujahideen, against Russia, but then we left them behind, and they turned into... Al-Qaeda, they were angry, they turned into terrorists, and and Al-Qaeda. Obviously, we just had the 20th anniversary of the horrible 9-11, and that led to us invading Afghanistan. And at first, I think everybody thought, boy, that was quick. We just eliminated the Taliban within days, it seemed. But then what were we still doing there 20 years later? And almost every president since we invaded has sworn to pull us out of Afghanistan. Like what happened? I don't really understand. Why did this get so messed up? And and it, by the way, I don't think it's necessarily the president's fault. I don't know who's, I don't want to have blame. I just want to know what happened. What, this, how was the decision made and why was it, why were citizens left behind? And then what's going to happen next? Why is China involved now? And, and what happened in Iraq? Did we win that war? Is that war over? Like what is going on? And again, I keep up with things, but I think the information coming out of these places is so little because we're just sick of it as a topic. So I asked on uh, Brandon Webb, you've known, he's been on the podcast before, former Navy SEAL, has been in, in and out of the Navy and the SEALs for a decade or more. He was deployed, he was in the first group of people that was deployed to Afghanistan. So he's an expert to talk about what this war is about. And now he runs a geopolitical military news service called SoftRep, S-O-F-R-E-P, that, you know, millions of people check out for their geopolitical news. So he's the expert on all of this. And he's been involved in other things, he'll explain. So he talks to us about Afghanistan, Iraq, his involvement in all these things. And finally, what happened? Why did it happen so poorly? And what will happen next? And as usual, this is divided up into parts one and two. Both parts are fascinating, and I learned so much. Without further ado, Brandon Webb. Brandon Webb on, and we were just talking about the fact that I'm not really growing a beard. I'm just not shaving. And Brandon says he trims his beard every 10 days. And then we started talking. This is before the podcast. Jay mentioned something about how I look more Jewish. I called him a Nazi, which is appropriate. And <laughs> no, it's not appropriate. The Nazis were worse than Jay, barely. But um, and Brandon mentioned that in the the Taliban, uh, it's a sign of manhood. manhood. And I could I could personally attest that the little scruff I'm growing is not a sign of my manhood. <laughs> Well, I was fit. I was going to say also when, remember when that Bo Bergdahl, the guy in Afghanistan years ago went AWOL and they sent all these guys after to hunt, kind of hunt him down. He left a note and just walked out of the, out of the camp. And then, um, the Taliban captured him and then they turned him back over totally clean shaven. But to them, like Americans would think, Oh, that's no big deal. But, that was like a, an, an insult by them towards us. Like here's the girly man back. Cause they shaved him like a woman. So that is the, the funniest, like, did they shave his pubic hair? That I don't know that. <laughs> I don't, I I mean, don't know if I want to know. This is the funniest story. It's like, 
it's like I needed to take a goddamn shower, so I so I uh, went missing in action just so I could get captured because I knew they would give me clean hygiene before returning me over to to the Americans. And then what was his punishment? It's like he in jail or anything? I I'd have to check. I think he went to Leavenworth. I, I, there was outrage in the military community because this guy essentially went AWOL and people died looking for him, like searching for him. Uh, so oh, that, that was the rub with after the fact that, you know, many, many guys doing their jobs lost their lives to, to kind of try and find this guy who ended up, they brokered a deal with the Taliban to turn him back over. And so, I mean, the, I want to talk to you about Afghanistan in general. You've been in the Navy SEALs. You were deployed to the Persian Gulf. And you also have run a, uh, a you were 13 years in the Navy with eight of them as a SEAL. But you've also run kind of a, um, this this new service, SoftRep, which is like, how would you describe it? It's like a military geopolitical strategy, geostrategy news service, which a lot of people subscribe to and get their news about international events. What's really the truth about what's happening as opposed to the yeah. press release regurgitated, you know, mainstream media, you get the inside dirt because you know, people in the intelligence agencies, the yep. seals, the Navy, the military. And, uh, uh, so it's a great service to subscribe to softrep.com. Uh, but, uh, so I want to talk to you about Afghanistan, but my first question is yep. on this guy. Did he, when he left the camp, where did he think he was going to go? Like, where can you go in Afghanistan that you could finally say, phew, at least I'm safe now. Yeah, I, I think he honestly thought, and I'd have to go back and look at the letter. I'm sure we could Google it in two minutes, but he essentially said, I, I believe it was, he kind of lost and this is a great topic because he had, I forget how many years ago this was, but he said, I've lost, um, belief in the u.s mission and then i'm i'm out of here like i'm i'm gonna go i think he thought he would join up with the taliban or something like that which was got a little bit different reception right like there, there's a lot of things wrong with that but maybe some things he was saying made i don't know like we don't know anything and we're, we're recording this two days after the 20-year anniversary of 9-11 we've all had horrible stories remembering that day and a lot of people shared them and you know, a lot of people enlisted in, you know, the military after that. I don't know. Did you enlist in the military after that? No, I had joined in 93, then was a search and rescue swimmer and then went to SEAL training in 97 uh, and then spent my time in the SEAL team from 97 to 2006. Then I, I contracted with a government agency, an intelligence agency, um, went back to Iraq uh, in Kurdistan up in Sulmania, which is the, I believe the capital of Kurdistan, but they, so had some experience seeing like what happened to Iraq after we pulled out and cause and just kind of the Kurdish dynamic in, in this whole Iraq picture. But I went to Afghanistan right after nine 11. So I was uh, at the time I was married, my wife was eight and a half months pregnant, and and I saw the second plane at the towers in San Diego, which where the West Coast SEAL teams are based, and said, "Okay, I'm I'm going to go. I'm next out the door, so I'll, I'll be gone, and probably going to miss the birth of my son." And Hunter was born uh, November 30th, 2001, when I think I was in. I just finished a mission up in up in the north, based out of Bagram 
airbase. So, so you got there. You were basically like in the first team landing in Afghanistan. And at the time, I, I remember. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of history, and we could kind of go over it. But just like right there, the the you know nine eleven happened. We, we we realized it was Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, and they were based in Afghanistan, and the Taliban was basically supporting them and hiding them and and enabling them. And it kind of was confusing, like, is the Taliban the same as Al-Qaeda? Is Al-Qaeda the same as the Taliban? Yeah. Like, I didn't know. Like, I think the average person didn't really understand. And so you were there. And from what I remember, it was, like, quick and dirty. Like, I remember just thinking that was pretty quick that we beat Afghanistan in a war. And then 20 yeah. years later, you know, we just finally pulled out. And even now it's, like, a mess. We st we're still attacking them. And and I don't want to make a judgment on who made mistakes. Like they all made mistakes. But uh, yeah. uh, why didn't did did it feel to you when you were there that you were just like mopping up and that it was going to be over quick? It's it, so the difference for I would say when I was there and up until so I was there in two thousand one to to I think February two thousand two and we had gotten. I think we were there end of October, beginning of November, uh, until till uh, February the next year. But the mission was very clear. It was just what you said, right? It was destroy the terrorist training camps, kill the bad guys, and hunt down Bin Laden. And that was that was a simple mission. The rules of engagement were very simple. If you run into fighting age male, which is I think they briefed us fifteen years or older. Um, you could engage the enemy and that. So the mission and the rules were very clear, but past 2003, that's when it kind of drifted into, into no man's land where nobody seemed to realize what the hell we we're still doing over there. Um, and this big defense machine had stood up and, and now um, we invade Iraq. Right. And, and so it's like, what are we doing in Afghanistan? What's the purpose and what says that mission is accomplished in Afghanistan. And then we went to fight the war in Iraq. And then in the special operations world, the SEAL Team 6 got Afghanistan and Delta Force got Iraq. And, and they're the ones that, that actually ended up capturing uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. And then it just felt like we were drifting aimlessly. And I think I told the story last time on the show, I had this dinner. So now I'm out of the military starting a business. And I went to this dinner. Uh, my law firm, Shepard Mullen, invited me to this defense dinner. And the, the former Air Force General Counsel, Mary Walker, was speaking at this dinner. A very sharp lady. And I was one of the first ones to ask a question. I said, look, Mary, you." and this was 2010. And I said, Mary, like, I just... I wanted your opinion. I have friends that are still serving in Afghanistan. Nobody seems to know what we're doing over there. The rules of engagement have gotten very blurry. I had friends going on ops. And imagine this, going on a mission in Afghanistan, like say a direct action mission to, to, uh, um, to this compound that the Taliban, that maybe a Taliban warlord owned, and they hit the compound, shots fired, they come back because they have another mission to go on. And this is now like three in the morning and they want to get, there's another mission in an, in an hour. They're reloading bullets in the magazines and NCIS is, is interrogating them. I'm like, okay, why, why did you do these shots on target? Um, because they're, 
kind of like making sure that these guys are following the rules of warfare and they're like getting interrogated before they even go out on a second op for the night. Um, and so it's just like, you're trying to fight whatever, uh, even if it's just the battle, maybe these guys didn't know what the mission was, but and their hands are, are tied behind their backs. And there's this crazy rules of engagement that guys actually got, got in trouble in the military. Um, so imagine trying to fight a war like that. Then I asked Mary, I explained all this to her and I said, what the hell are we doing in Afghanistan? Like, what is the strategic purpose? You, you've been in DC or around, you know, the president's staff. And she said, I, I have no idea what we're doing there still in 2010. And these, this room full of defense executives from SAIC and, um, L3 and Boeing, they were, they were like shocked. To, to hear that she said that and i was like well, well at least i appreciate your honesty because i mean I, I, yeah nobody seems it? to know did she say a follow-up to that like why does she have no idea like why didn't she have any idea like you would think that at the highest level there would be at least a narrative of a plan that's the problem that there was no plan and that's when you drift aimlessly in any organization without a clear plan, it's just a disaster. And that's why you see this culmination of, of, of what would happen with this, you know, abortion of a withdrawal. Um, because we just really never had a plan, never really, you know, never had a, never built a strong foundation culturally. And so boom, the Taliban takes over, has more control of the country than, than they did when we invaded. And we pumped two trillion dollars in, into the into the equation, eighty nine billion for the Afghan army, which most most of that is equipment that we just kind of handed over the keys to to the Taliban. So, so let me ask about about Mary's answer, the Air Force General Counsel, and yeah. this was kind of in the middle of the whole thing. So it's about nine years after it started and ten years ago. So it's like right in the middle when these questions were were really being asked probably for the first time. I mean, maybe they were asked earlier, but I, I kind of felt for myself, I was asking them a lot then. And I, I will give the answer I think she would have given if there had been a plan, which is that, listen, if we just leave, the Taliban is just gonna take over and Al-Qaeda is gonna come back. We're trying to nation build, meaning let's leave this country economically more developed than it was when we got here with democracy as the rule of the land. And we believe that can happen. Whether the, whether she was right or wrong, who knows? But that, I feel like that was yeah. the plan and the, the justification. But maybe, but, but maybe the problem is they didn't know how to do that. Like, how do you, you know, you, there's a saying, you either trade bullets or money over borders. And somehow or other, yeah. they never really economically developed the country. Even though it was a very secular developed country, let's say in the 60s and 70s before all these wars and battles happened. Yeah, and I also, when I got out and lost my first startup, I went to work in the defense industry for L3 uh, for the a division called Linkabit, which Qualcomm spun out of. But we were all about communications. So I, I kind of had this view of the government acquisition inside, now outside, and and running at the, at the time, my side hustle was software, which, which I turned into a business. Um, and we were, we were covering software, looking, looking at the incentive systems that were in place for these retired generals and admirals that they're getting 
recruited heavily by these defense companies. Now they're in and they're talking to their buddies who are on active duty saying, hey, buy these new airplanes, this, this amount of Predator drones, they're selling all this equipment. And it becomes this like crazy cycle of incentives to like keep it, keep the war machine going, right? So I think that in part played heavily um, in just the politics of war uh, uh, so, is what kept us there and the defense spending. So, so let's talk about that for a second, because again, I'm totally naive. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower famously towards the end of his term, or it might've been his final speech in his presidential term, he, he warned against the rising military industrial complex and how the military was having too much influence in government through lobbying and so on. And we've seen all his examples of, you know, bad behavior by congressmen because of military lobbyists. Is that true? Is that really what's happening? Like the military is just whining and dining these guys. And so they're saying, sure, let's, let's buy a bunch of, you know, this military equipment and have another year of war. Like, is that what's happening? Is it so blatant? No, I, I, I don't think it's that as blatant, but it's how it is. That does happen, right? The, the courtship, the, the promise of, Hey, when you're out, I'm going to, I'm going to get you on the board of this big defense company. So these like, you know, backroom deals happen for sure. Cause I've, I've seen it firsthand Now there's very strict rules in place um, in government contracting to try and limit the, the amount of, of potential um, bad behavior. But, you know, these promises of jobs and these, you know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine on these big contracts that that stuff happens all the time. And, and I think it, it's a part of the problem. Um, and, and then, uh, you know, I, in, in all respect for Biden, I said, look, Biden wasn't like staying up late at night with little army men on the Afghan map, trying to figure out what was happening. He's relying on these military experts, the joint chiefs of, of staff, to kind of tell him what to, what do we do? So I, I put a lot of blame on on the Afghan pullout on on the top military brass. And I, I want to get to that in a second, but I just want to understand the, the yeah. background a little more, which includes really your, also sure. your decisions. You know, you've been in. So so as far as I could tell now from what you said, you you were in Afghanistan right then, and you know doing the initial mop up, and then you know staying through to whatever was next. Then you left for a while and you're in a law firm dealing with defense. Then you, somehow or other, I'm getting the order wrong, but uh, I want to understand what you meant when you said you were contracted by an intelligence service to go to Iraq. <laughs> there, There's a story no. there. You can't just say you were, con what, what, yeah. were you in the <laughs> CIA or some other intelligence agency or, and what does it mean to be contracted by? Like what, what happened? So there are certain, so my order was, Deployed to Afghanistan 2001 to 2002, went to instructor duty to 2006, where I, I was ended up my last tour running the sniper program. Then I got out and contracted for one of the three letter agencies. I, I'm I'm under NDA. I tried to like the stuff is so unclassified. I tried to request a allow me to say it, but I can't. So I, I can allude, allude to it. And you can so did you kind of join them out. or you were like a freelancer? Like you, what kind of tax return did you get? <laughs> um, yeah. No, I was total 1099. So they sir, these agencies have programs where they contract out work with ex special ops guys to kind of go overseas and, and work um, um, in a variety of different roles. So I, I ended up going to uh, Northern Iraq um, and seeing, you know, that side of the 
the kind of intelligence collection. What, what was uh, your mission there? Side of things. Um, our mission was was to basically plan pickups and meetups with people that were giving information to um, different intelligence groups uh, in the U.S. What do you mean? Um, pick, because pick up? Oh, 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 I like, see. So well, there would be someone who was like deep undercover. You'd figure out how to meet them and get the information back to the U.S. Or you'd figure out how to get the money yeah. or whatever it is they needed. Or or the person in that, and in many cases. Like Did you we, have to rescue anyone? There was, uh, no, nobody uh, was rescued. We we did also deliver large amounts of, of cash to various individuals um, who had Why? like read, read, and they had regional influence and they were giving up, you know, who knows what information they were giving, but it, the U S government said, deemed it enough. In some cases we were paying uh, millions of dollars a month. So, so, so uh, there would be crazy. some like so I, some warlord in Kurdistan that was influential and he had, Iran, Iraq, Russia, and us, and maybe Al Qaeda all vying for his attention. And yeah. he was basically holding out for the most money. Like, what did they do with? I, and I know this is a little off topic. But what I always what did they do with that money? Did they put it in a Swiss bank account and eventually retire, or what happens to that money? I like mean, they don't spend it. There's no like there's no like Macy's in Kurdistan. <laughs> well, your guess is as good as mine, but this. In one particular case, this guy was a religious leader slash warlord, had plenty of, you know, Toyota Hilux vehicles with, with guns and ammunition. So um, I assume it was a lot of like basically buying uh, hired, hired guns and, and equipment. But, but for sure, I mean, I'm probably squirreling, squirreling the money away somewhere. Did these guys ever retire and like just say, okay, I'm going to move now to a penthouse in New York. I've got $78 million left. And just like, if I meet somebody who's like really wealthy and they say, oh, I, I grew up and spent my life in Kurdistan. Should I assume he's like corrupt in some way? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Although I will say this, like Kurdistan is a very stable, um, part of Iraq. Like a totally, it seems like a totally different country. You know, they, they govern themselves, they police themselves. It's when you go in the south, it's chaos. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be in Kurdistan. Well, Kurdistan was weren't they weren't they totally disrupted by like we were sort of holding it together because the other Iraqis didn't like the Kurds or Turkey didn't like, I don't know, nobody liked the Kurds. And when we pulled out of Iraq, weren't they in trouble? Like didn't a lot of them die? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem. Like twice the Kurds gave us their loyalty. And this is part of the bigger issue with the Afghanistan um, is that we're constantly saying, look, this time we're gonna back you and you have our support. Um, and then we we kind of leave them hanging twice, you know, Gulf War one and then and now the second time in Iraq. And so, yeah, like a lot of a lot of good uh, Kurdish um, people in the military, the intelligence community got left hanging by by America um, in, a, in a bad way. And in, in the same sense, we did it in Afghanistan. And, and now the problem is, you know, when you look at 
especially the special operations in the army, their whole thing is to win hearts and minds. You know, the, the Green Berets, they, they get trained in various different skills, one of them being construction, engineering. So their whole thing is to go into these remote villages, build goodwill, win hearts and minds. Um, and, and how are we going to do that when when America keeps breaking its promise? That That's the, that's the big problem. And, and nobody seems to know. Like, I have friends like you globally uh, through my my Harvard Business School group, and they're like, "What the hell are you guys doing in America? Like, you destabilized Iraq, you know, caused this refugee crisis into Europe. Now we, for some reason, we decided to to overthrow Gaddafi in in Libya. Um, I lost a best friend there, Glenn Doherty. Um, f- for what reason? Like, Libya is still a failed state. So what what strategic objective did that accomplish for America? Like, I just don't understand what what the hell is going on with American foreign policy. I don't know if I'm the only one naive. And like, I try to keep up with things, but I'm asking this question because I honestly don't know. What happened in Iraq? Did we win or did we lose? Like, I feel like, I feel like uh, Iranians are now hanging out in Iraq, planning against us. And that, you know, the, the leaders there don't really like us right now. Did we liberate them? What what the hell is going on? No, over there? that's the problem. So we had a very. I remember a friend told me that the invasion book to go into Iraq, like the brief book, was like like this thick, and that the post Iraq book was like this thick, like tiny, thin. Like we just didn't really have a plan for once we captured Saddam and and he was executed. Again, nobody knew what the hell we were doing. Um, and, and instead of going, you know what, you can make an argument, we shouldn't have invaded or, or we, we should we should have or we shouldn't have, but we did. And, you know, okay, well then how do we pull out in a dignified way that doesn't destabilize the region? Because that's what happened. I mean, we, we pulled out and left this power vacuum. Iran, who already had a foothold and was funding uh, the insurgency against the Americans, all of a sudden, they're emboldened. They have massive control over over the region uh, in Iraq, and you see the rise of ISIS. Civil war kicks off in Syria, and people that and look, it's it's a complicated world. It's hard to keep track of everything. And and I remember talking to my friends in New York, and they're like, "Oh yeah, this is so bad. Like Syria, we need to go and and help and, and liberate Syria." I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Like you're fighting a proxy war with Russia because Syria." Uh, Russia has a like st- very strategic base in Syria, and Putin is not giving that up. So you'd essentially be fighting a proxy war against. Uh, All right. Well, here's Russia another dumb question. Iran. Here's another dumb question. Why do we give a shit? Like, why do we care about fighting a proxy <laughs> war with Russia? Like, let's say Russia wants well, to I, own I, Syria. Like, all right, take it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I'm I, we shouldn't give a shit. I I think that that was what was so frustrating to me seeing these politicians like. Even John McCain, who I who I respect for for his service and as a POW, um, was saying, "Oh, we need to arm the rebels." And I was like, "Are you kidding me? Like those rebels are ISIS. Like how could you not know that is what's going on?" And and it didn't work out so well for us when we armed the rebels in Afghanistan when the Soviets in the 80s had occupied Afghanistan uh, because we, you know, we armed basically been and trained Bin Laden. Like he was one of right. the Mujahideen fighting the, the Soviets. And and all of a sudden, because they had victory over over Russia, they they 
you know, in the, in a lot of the, um, Arab Mujahideen came from the Middle East. So they were already in Afghanistan. So then they set up this, like these terror training camps, which was again, back to our, our mission in 2001. Um, you've got to wipe out these, these infrastructure, uh, these two biggest camps. The one you saw on the, on that Al Qaeda recruiting video that was famous after 9-11, guys doing the monkey bars and jumping over fire pits. That was Tarnak Farms one. Uh, that was down in uh, in Kandahar in the south, and then uh, we took out um, and did a my unit at SEAL Team Three did a big reconnaissance mission on on the north near the Hindu Kush uh, for Tarnak Farms too. Was this was another big training camp, um, but what the hell we were doing after 2002, 2003 in Afghanistan, I really don't know. And you get, and it gets crazy because my friends, my peers who are, who were still in were complaining, like what, we don't know why we're here, what we're doing. And, and I'm, I heard, and I'll call it rumors, but we, we had a lot of sources coming to us now running soft reps saying you guys need to report on this and that. Um, but I heard, I heard strong rumors that, special operations units were hitting targets, not for any strategic value other than they knew they had money and gold and they were keeping the gold and money for themselves. Like that's how crazy um, stuff was getting over there. I mean, wait, it, you mean the special ops like the, people were keeping the money and the gold or so Americans, yeah. Americans. Yeah. And do they, I, again, and, I always wonder like, how'd they bring gold back? Like, did they just take a plane and they had like a sack of gold on their back or um, well, we heard they were turning it into U.S. dollars in Kabul. So, okay, we wow. we never quite get a get enough evidence to to prove it. But I mean, there was I, I took personally a lot of heat in my own community standing up for a few big stories we've done on Safra uh, around around war crimes and, and plus you know our our cooperation with uh, the New York Times, um, but. And, and this was at a time, you know, this is probably back in 2012, 13, 14. And that, that was a time in America, like people didn't want to hear about their heroes doing really bad stuff. Like they're just, even if you, you could Google war crimes in the, in the New York times and see there are a ton of material there, uh, like very good investigative reporting. It just fell on deaf ears because nobody was ready to hear about it back then. I think America is ready now, especially with, with this Afghan pullout and look, Vietnam, Afghanistan, you spend long enough time in some place and you're going to have this like nefarious stuff happen. So Iraq, we basically left it. Uh, I don't even know. Like we basically left it and we pulled out and all we accomplished in all those years was, I guess we removed Saddam Hussein, but now, now Iran essentially de facto runs Iraq from maybe, yeah. I don't know. And, and we, we disturbed, we disturbed the whole balance of power there. Like that's off limits for us at this point. We, do we even have an embassy in Iraq? Uh, I don't think so. No, I, and not. I, we and, may, and all, all the, this is, is the in other, the context of understanding Afghanistan. So, yeah, well, you look at cause and effect, right? The reason Brexit got so much attention was because of this refugees pouring into, into the UK. And they're like, okay, we need, and the EU made this decision, right? We're going to take this refugees. We'll have, why were the refugees fleeing the Middle East and Syria? Because we, the U.S. had left this power vacuum 
pulling out of Iraq. So now like in European Union that was trending towards open borders, now closed borders, countries are putting up fences, and and now you have this push for Brexit, which was largely, you know, fueled by um, this whole oh we're, we 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 can't take these terrorists in, into our country and harbor them like who who are these people and so like we in some ways like we caused this whole mess in Europe and kicked off Brexit by the by the uh, sudden pullout and power vacuum we left in Iraq so and that's the thing like you need to really from my perspective the we've had this schizophrenic foreign policy with no clear plan and it's like if we don't if americans don't understand what the hell we're doing abroad and the war fighters in being deployed to places like iraq and afghanistan don't understand what we're doing there that's a big problem like in any organization yeah right and, so it sounds like so basically it was, they played it sounds like they basically played a giant video game like okay we've got these you know strength units and equipment units and now we're going to go find the gold <laughs> And that's it. That's all yeah. we're doing is playing this real life video game. So, so I guess this brings us to Afghanistan. And so just to yeah. summarize my naiveness, it seems to me that Obama, Trump, Biden, and basically every candidate alongside them has basically said, we want to get out of Afghanistan. So why didn't it happen earlier? What happened now? Why was it extended? What's I going on? <laughs> And so I also I'll tell your audience a great book that uh, was written by a friend of mine, Jeremy Scale, called Dirty Wars. Dirty Wars is a very honest look at at um, both uh, the Bush administration and and the Obama administration and how hawkish Obama was. Like Obama was the first president. I mean, just like the year he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he killed a 16 year old American citizen who just happened to be the son of a, of a suspected terrorist, uh, Anwar al-Laki. Al-Laki, also an American citizen. They went to Yemen to visit the grandparents, and someone in Obama signed off on it. They drone strike the 16-year-old American citizen. So you know, Jeremy wrote the first book that kind of put him on the stage of, called Blackwater, right? It was about the, the whole uh, military uh, contracting machine that kind of got out of control. And, and, in, in Iraq, um, but he wrote Dirty Wars, and he made a he made some pretty strong uh, assertions towards the not not just the Bush administration, but the Obama administration, and, and didn't get as big a fanfare as he did for uh, publishing Blackwater. But Dirty Wars is an excellent book that if people are wondering what the hell we've been doing the last twenty years. Read read Dirty Wars. I highly highly recommend it. All right, um, I I will. So. So, okay, so yeah. Obama was saying he's going to pull out of there, but in fact, he increased troops and you're saying he was hawkish. Yeah. And again, I'm not making and, a judgment about Obama. Like you said, he was, yeah. he had tons of advisors, not like he was a, a foreign Afghanistan expert. Well, that's when I, when I look at the current, the current makeup of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I see not a lot of strong leaders, leadership coming from that group. And I think a lot of dissenting voices in Afghanistan got pushed aside uh, in, in the officer ranks. And, and then you end up with this, you know, the, what we had with, with the pullout. So I, I, I really take um, issue with the senior leadership in the military that 
who the hell, why didn't the group of them stand up 10, 15 years ago and say, look, there's no reason for us to be in Afghanistan. Um, we are wearing out our troops. I have people I used to be friends with in SEAL teams. I don't even recognize these people anymore because they've been so traumatized by 15, 20 combat deployments. They're not even the same people. I We even heard they're getting like inspir- experimental injections and in, in, in their spine when they come back just so they can like have a normal conversation at dinner with their families. Like these, these wait, guys, wait, are like what, what are they being trouble. injected with? I, I can find out. I'll have to ask one of my friends. Cause this, we had a conversation a couple of years ago and he was telling me, yeah, they get this injection in the brainstem. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, it's like, is it like an anti-anxiety, like an extreme anti-anxiety thing or something? I think it has something to do with, with anxiety and, and, just to, to kind of relax them because they're so wired so tight. I mean, look, anytime you put an animal or a person into a traumatic environment, whether it's rape, a car accident, it's going to change that person. Um, and, and so these guys are completely over traumatized. Now, are you, you are you over traumatized? Many... You've, you've been in and out of there a bunch of times. Like, what did you do? Well, my whole, the thing is when I, when I deployed, it felt like we, and we did have a purpose and, you know, back to Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning. If in the lack of, if you have a lack of purpose, you're in big trouble. And I think what the reason I've transitioned and look, I've had my struggles. I, I really struggled with losing my friend, Glenn Doherty in Benghazi, Libya, um, who was contracted for the CIA. Uh, and we can get into that whole story, which was, which is a nightmare because um, the, the CIA originally didn't pay out his life insurance policy. Um, and his friends and I had to pay for his burial. So his mom didn't have to pay the bills. Why, why didn't they but pay his life insurance policy? There, there was a small disclaimer on the bottom of the policy that said, if he didn't have a, uh, a spouse or dependents that it wouldn't, the policy was, would never pay out. So it was like this little fine print um, when his family, um, and some of our friends went to the CIA with director Brennan. They, they, they called the family into the office and pointed out the small, you know, Oh, this is why this, you know, the insurance is not paid out. So they're like, like, wait a minute, you're mandating that these guys pay for a policy that you know, will never pay out. They're saying, we don't care what, what's in the contract, what we care about what's right. So the good thing that came out of the whole, uh, Glenn Doherty issue was that, um, the family basically shamed the CIA to to back pay over I think 300 families back into the back until the 80s when we had that uh, embassy bombing in Beirut that killed all these Marines and, and contractors. But there was like 300 families that had, that were in a similar situation, and they all I think got paid a half a million dollars. So so there's a lot of good that did come out of it, and the CIA to their credit did ended up doing the right thing in the end, uh, but. I felt like I transitioned back into society because I had a sense of purpose behind my deployment. We did terrible things like war is, is not like what you see in the movies. Um, we dropped bombs on bad guys who had had their families with them. And I remember first time we dropped um, a couple thousand pound JDAMs, you could hear babies crying in the background. Like it was, it oh was my God. intense. And, and I wrote about that in, in the red circle. If you remember the first yeah, chapter, yeah. um, but I think I adjusted because I had a sense of purpose. The, the problem with a lot of these returning uh, vet, 
veterans who are, who are now transitioned out of the military is they don't have a sense of purpose. They're like, why did I, why the hell was I in Afghanistan? Why did my friends die? Why did I do these things? What was it all for? And now you have this massive increase in, in veteran suicide um, and then frustration with the Department of Veteran Affairs, which does a, a terrible job. There are great people that care greatly in that work for the VA, but the bureaucracy, it, it, we did a story on SOFRA uh, a few weeks ago that says that your chances of committing suicide go up 15 percentage points if you enter the VA healthcare system. So they're actually doing more harm than good. So what's going on? So we decided to get out of Afghanistan a decade or so ago. Why didn't it happen immediately? What needed to happen for it to happen? And why did it happen now? And why did it go wrong? So Brandon set the stage. What was he doing there? How did all this start? What happened in Iraq? What was he doing in Iraq as a quote unquote contracted intelligence professional? And, and now in part two, which was also released today, uh, he describes what exactly happened in this pullout of Afghanistan. Why did it go so wrong? Why were civilians left behind? Uh, and why, and what will happen next? And why is China involved? and a bunch of other things too. So listen to part two. It's out today as well. We're releasing these part one and part two on the same day. So go for it. 